few things in our lives as amazing and as joy-filled as the announcement of a pregnancy and all that goes with that, the expectation of a child, right? The telling of your family and friends, the, the baby showers, the gender reveal parties, the Lamaze classes, getting your go bag ready, and then delivery day. Uh, for those of you who have had the blessing of having children, you know exactly what I mean. All those things in the moment can seem stressful and anxiety-ridden, but when you look back, there they are some fun memories. Uh, I clearly remember all three of the days of, of my children's birth as if it was yesterday. Um, uh, well, that's because, I mean, they were filled with, like, drag races and amniotic fluid explosions and all that. And so I, I just, I got to tell because I mentioned that, and someone said, I got to hear that story. So um, I don't have time for all three of them, but my second born, my wife, oh, man, oh, my sister-in-law is right looking at me. I didn't get permission. That's okay. I'm going to share this, because my wife's really confident in herself. So apparently, um, <laughs> and this is between us, stop the video right now. Okay, so you know, um, statistically, I don't know if it's changed, but about 10% of women, their water breaks, right? You see in the movies that happens a lot, but that's only about 10% of the population. Well, I married that 10%, and I'll never forget sleeping, and all of a sudden, about 4 a.m., hearing as if a gallon of water just exploded in my bathroom. And, and, and then I looked up, and there was Lori, and she says, it's time to go. So I, I put her into the bed, and I get a babysitter to come watch our son, Asher, and get her down into the car. And because we were told this time we don't need to get ready because we were going to schedule a cesarean, and so not to worry about it. So we, did, we didn't worry about it. We didn't have a go bag. We didn't have anything ready to go. But now we needed to go. So I got Lori in the car, and I ran. Remember, we needed some things, so I ran into the bathroom to grab the things we needed. And it was like a cartoon, man. Slip. And all I could see looking down was amniotic fluid everywhere. And bam! And I slid like down. I mean, that stuff was slippery. And I remember getting up, running down to the car, and I am just covered in amniotic fluid. And Lori's sitting there, and she looks at me and says, oh, tell me you didn't. <laughs> like... Yeah, I did. It's all over, everywhere. Anyway, that was just one. But the point, get back to the sermon. Okay, how am I going to segue into Mary at this point? As memorable as our personal experiences are, and sometimes funny, I bet you none of them compare to the experience of Mary when she was finding out what was going on in her life. For one thing, it wasn't she making the announcement of her pregnancy. An angel had announced to her that she was pregnant, right? And it wasn't just a gender that was being revealed to Mary. It was the entire destiny of this child. Not just the destiny of this child, but the destiny of all humanity based upon this child. And for Mary to go public with this announcement, we know was not going to be met with joyous celebration. In fact, Matthew 1.19 tells us this announcement was met with the quiet consideration of, of divorce, now, if you're paying attention, you say, wait, I thought Mary was, was, was engaged. She wasn't married yet, but in, in, in Jewish culture, engagements were such a serious matter that you couldn't break off an engagement. It, it was as if a divorce was taking place. She was bound. This is a lot for a young, Mary's probably between 14 and 17 years of age when we see her in the gospel narratives at, at the very beginning to be between 14 and 17, unmarried, and the child within your womb, not to be from your betrothed, was not a good situation. 
Now, Mary, unlike Joseph that we looked at last week, has a lot of material that we could pull from from the Gospels. We have, to start off with, the interaction between Mary and the angel Gabriel. We have the interaction between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth. We have the interaction between Mary and Jesus himself later in life. We have the interaction between Mary and Jesus' followers and disciples. Mary is in the Gospel narrative from the beginning to the end. Now, if Jason's challenge last week was finding anything about Joseph, our challenge this week is finding the right thing about Mary, because there's just so much to consider. Stop and think about it. The huge revelation for this young Jewish teenage girl being told that she's going to be the human mother of the Son of God. There's a lot of perspectives that we could look at when we consider Mary in our Advent series. First of all, there's, there's the social, cultural perspective. She's a teenage, unwed mother. How did she navigate that situation in a time and in a culture where to be an unwed mother, to have a child out of wedlock brought such huge social stigma and shame? How did she navigate the feeling of failing her community and family, especially knowing she had done nothing wrong, nothing sinful at all. What about the political economic perspective when you think about Mary? She was going to be, now remember, this is where we know the story too well, but remember our teachings from Mark, what they thought of the Messiah. She was going to be the mother of the Messiah, the deliverer of the nation of Israel to throw off the oppressive hand of Rome. What helped her keep perspective and, and maintain such humility and a submissive spirit rather than take advantage of this situation and demand some kind of power amongst her community, if at the very least, some kind of financial uh, support for being mother of the Savior of the nation? We could also look at this from a, um, maybe an, an apologetic, rational perspective, right? That, that, that would be fitting in our day and age. Well, how can a woman in the first century be pregnant without a man? Right? How, how, we, we know better now in our, in our postmodern culture, how can a virgin birth actually even be true? What would be the implications that if it were true? More importantly, what would be the implications if it wasn't true? Right? So there's, there's that perspective we could look at. There's finally what we might call the moral spiritual example perspective, how this angel merely has to remind Mary of the character and omnipotence of God, and Mary instantly replies with those stirring words, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Each of these perspectives could make a Sunday sermon worth thinking about because each of those perspectives and answers would be really relevant to us. How do we handle the social consequences of being obedient to the Lord, especially when that obedience leads to us being marginalized or looked down upon in our society? How do we leverage power and opportunity in a way that brings honor to God and not just puffing ourselves up? How do we offer a clear response to honest questions in an increasingly doubting world? How should we as believers respond to the commands of God? Each of these are important to us, and I think we get a glimpse into how we might answer each of those questions by taking the perspective that Mary actually takes in Luke chapter 1 that we'll be looking at. In other words, Mary saw her situation 
not primarily through the filter of society, culture, politics, money, or power, but she saw the situation of her life distinctly through a theological perspective. That is to say, she saw her life through the perspective of a sovereign, good God, and because that was her driving or that was her primary filter, a lot of the answers to these other questions were already answered for her. And we don't get to see that, but we see that lived out in her life. So what we want to do this morning is to, to, to see her own words, hear her own words of how she processed what we now have come to call the Advent. And if you have, if you have a Bible, turn up into Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. If you need to use a pew Bible, that's going to be on page, uh, I think it's 804. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is actually pretty famous. It's, it's actually called in Latin the Magnificant. Uh, it's taken from the very first word of Mary's prayer or song because she says, I magnify the Lord. It's also called Mary's song, and without doubt, it is one of the most helpful, one of the most reorienting. It is one of the life trajectory uh, settings or texts of the entire Gospels, if not the entire Bible. In many ways, what Mary prays and sings here in Luke 1 is very similar, as Adam said, to the words of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2. As a matter of fact, if you're a note taker, you might want to write down Luke 1, 46 to 45, maybe in parentheses, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Because you do see a lot of, uh, uh, there's an analog between these two women. I mean, just this, these two women singing these two songs come from both two impossible situations. One, totally barren, cannot bear a child. The other, still a virgin, shouldn't be able to bear a child. Both giving birth to two amazing sons. One, a prophet of God's Word the other, the incarnation of God's Word. One would be a priest, the other, a sacrificial lamb. And both these women crying out to God and celebrating, rejoicing in the gift of this child, recognizing that through this child, God is answering His redemptive promises to His people. So, it's, it's an amazing analog. We don't have time to unpack it, but I hope at some point you'll go home and you'll read it and see the two and how the themes, thousands of years separated, we see reoccurring themes of God's faithfulness over to His people. What we're going to look at are three reasons that Mary gives us that she magnifies the Lord, and I think you'll find those are three reasons we can magnify the Lord as well. The three reasons that Mary magnifies the Lord is because she remembers that the Lord God is a rememberer of covenants. The second one is that the Lord God is the redeemer of all. And the third is that the Lord God is the reverser of fortunes. So he's the rememberer of covenants, the redeemer of all, and the reverser of fortunes. Now, before we unpack these 10 verses, let's, let's stand together and read them because they are so powerful. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to His offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, as we have just got through reading Mary's song, we have to ask a question, and that is this. Number one, why does God do these things for Mary? Why does God do these things for Mary? Why does God do these things for His people? Why does God look upon Mary's humble estate, as she says in verse 48? Why does God, as Mary says in verse 49, do great things for her? Why does God show His strength for those who are of low estate or humble estate? We see in verse 42. Why does God give us mercy? Why does God send us His Son at Christmas? The question is, why does God do anything for any of us at all? It's a good question that we need to think about. Our culture, our world will give us different responses, obviously. The humanist response, which is the air we breathe, right? If you live today, we live in the age of humanism. It's the, the era that came up from the Renaissance, then through the Enlightenment, modernity, now post-modernity. That's the air we breathe, that humanity is the sum total of reality with, the center of all things. From this viewpoint, we have gotten all kinds of ideas, including the self-esteem movement and all of this. And the, the humanists would say it's because humanity is at the center of reality and we're deserving of such treatment. But the humanist response would be wrong. Now, if you've grown up in the church, and maybe you maybe just grown up as a moral person, you might have what I call maybe the more moralist religious response, and that is God likes to bless people who are obedient to Him, and that's why He's doing what He's doing. Well, that sounds a little bit true. We did read some of that, but that still would be wrong too. Maybe if you just grew up in our culture of self-esteem and self-affirmation, you think, well, aren't we special? Doesn't God just love us because? And we might call that the self-esteem response. And that sounds a little like it should be true, but it's not either. At least those are none of the reasons Mary gives us. Mary tells us why God does what He does. Look right there in verse 54 and 55. It's really because God is a rememberer of His covenants. You see that right there? He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke, or just like He spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Look at verse 50, back up a little bit. He says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see, the reference to Abraham is a reference to what's called the Abrahamic covenant. If you're a note taker, you need to write this down. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. These are pivotal chapters in the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, where God gives his covenant to humanity. And the covenant, among other things, is through you, Abraham, I will make a blessing to all families of the world. Through Abraham and his seed would come kings and would come a king. This was called the Abrahamic covenant. And, and there are covenants all throughout Scripture. You've got the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New covenant. The point is, none of God's covenants are abrogated. They always deepen, they always widen, they always expand. But Mary is magnifying God because He remembers His covenants with His people. 
And it's a good covenant. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9 really makes the point. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 103, verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Friends, one of the first things Mary reminds us of, the reason she magnifies the Lord, she helps us understand that our present and our future must be understood in light of God's merciful intervention and faithfulness in the past as it's been recorded in Scripture. Can I tell you how important that is, that we cannot make sense of who we are as a people, whether you are a Christian or not, we cannot make sense of our reality now or hope to know where it's all going if we forget about who God is and His faithfulness and His intervention in the past as it's revealed in His Word. We need God's Word. You may not like it. You may not even accept it. But if you're going to understand who we are and where we are headed as a people, and I mean like people, human beings, you will not figure that out unless you understand and appreciate the revelation we have in God's Word. Mary is recognizing that what God is doing in her, in her life, is because He keeps covenant, and He intends to fulfill the promise He made to Abraham to be a blessing to all people. And that includes Mary, but she sees what's happening to her in this broader perspective, and she praises God because He remembers His covenant if you were here last week, Jason reminded you that it had been centuries since God had raised up a prophet. It had been centuries since God had spoken to His people. You could easily believe and understand why they would have thought God has forgotten. But God remembers His covenants. Friends, Christmas is proof that God is a rememberer of His covenants. In other words, Christmas reminds us God will always, always keep His promises to you. And I hope that is comforting to hear. I hope that is comforting because we live in a world where there are broken promises everywhere, every day, and people are breaking their promises to you. Politicians will break their promises to you, whether they're explicit campaign promises that they break or implicit promises to be a paragon of virtue and something that can help the society. Whether they're Republicans in San Diego or Democrats in Los Angeles, they break their promises. Parents, maybe your parents have broke promises. Maybe they broke promises to you or maybe they broke their promise to one another. Parents, politicians, employers, employees break promises. Maybe you've had friends who've let you down. They haven't been true to their work. The point is, we live in a world of broken promises, and we get a little used to that. We get a little cynical to that until we're reminded that God is a rememberer of His covenants, and He does not break His promises. Now, we need to be clear God is under no obligation to fulfill any promise you wish He had made to you, right? He only will fulfill the promises He's actually made to you. 
but the ones he has made to you and to us, we can rest assured that he will keep them. And Christmas is a reminder of that. And Mary was excited to see God's promise to his people coming to pass. Friend, what promise has God made to you in his word? If you've been a Christian a while, and maybe, maybe you're kind of down, and maybe you've, you're forgetting the joy of your salvation, let me ask you, what promise has God made to you in His Word? If you cannot recall one, friend, maybe that's why discouragement and the cloud of despair can come over you a little bit more than it should. Do you know the promise that God has given to you? Can you claim them? That He will never leave or forsake you, that His thoughts towards you are as numerous as the sand of the sea, and that they are always good. Because if you can recall those promises, recall the mind that He's a remember of those promises as well. And you can rest assured that it will come to pass because the Lord is a remember of His covenant. Secondly, Mary magnifies the Lord because she realizes that He's the Redeemer of all. Did you notice in the first four verses how personal and intimate this, this song is, right? Mary cries out, my soul, my spirit, the things He's done for me. But then at verse 50, it's kind of like a hinge point, it's a pivot point, where she now reflects on God's gracious redemption to all people. His mercy is for all who fear Him, generation to generation, she says. Friends, Mary is expressing a really, really important point that, that, that it's so good for our time to know, and that's this, that God's plans will include you, but God's plans will always transcend you. Let me say that again because it's a biblical principle and it's so important that in our culture that focuses so much on the individual, we remember this, that God's plans will include you, but God's plans will always transcend you. The reason that's important is if we forget that, that, that I'm part of what God is doing, and I believe that it's all about me, my growth, my experience, my relationship with God, what happens is we become untethered and unhooked and unhinged from the reality that God says He's making a people for His glory and not just a collection of individuals. That what God is doing in my life includes blessings for me that I can enjoy, but the reason He does good for me is so that that flows out to people around me. And I've got to remember that, especially because I live in a culture that is constantly telling me that my life is mine. And I've got a scripture that's constantly telling me that my life is not mine because we've been bought and paid for at a price. And Mary is remembering that what God is doing in her is not just for her, but it's for those around her. And I'll never forget, I'm in a, a coalition of pastors, and I was talking with a pastor, and, and, and he had taken a pastorate that he was counseled not to, not, and simply because the counsel given to him was they wanted him to, to pastor a bigger church, a livelier church, a younger church, a thriving church, and he chose to choose a church, we call it a revitalization work, that things weren't going well, and it wasn't a, a kind of a church you'd want to take as a pastor, but he chose it anyway. And guess what? God had blessed him, the work had started to revive, and, and things were going well. And as we were having the conversation, I got the distinct impression that he was beginning to think that he was the reason that these things were happening. 
And I said, hey, I want to be really honest with you because I love you and I love God's church. And I think you are gifted. God is blessing you. God always uses means for his purposes. So I want to acknowledge that. I said, do, do you also think that it's probably more likely, given what we know about God, that the reason things are turning around and going great is not so much because you're his wonder boy and he loves you and he wants to reward you as much as it is that he really loves those people and he wants to continue to bless and use them. And he said, said to me, that, that's a paradigm-shifting thing because I had thought that if I just do the right things and I do this, it's going to have the right results, and that's what I was seeing, and I thought, great, I'm doing the right thing, and I hadn't really thought that the reason things are going well, yes, God loves me, but it wasn't because He loves me. It's because He loves those people, and I just happen to be the man of the moment that goes along for the ride. God's friends, God's plans include us, but they're always going to transcend us, and we need to remember that and hold that tension and love it because there's so many applications to that. Friends, do you have wealth? That's not for yours alone. I'm not going all socialist on you here, but I'm just, I, want to, I want to be biblical here. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18 says, to those who are wealthy, be rich in good works, be generous, and to share. Do you have strength? Do you have vitality and youth? The Bible says, don't use that for your own plans and purposes. Use it for the good of others. Romans 10, 12 says, Outdo one another in showing love. Be fervent in spirit. Do you have faith? Oh, do you have faith? Then, then use your faith to encourage others around you who are going through difficulty and trials. Do you have wisdom? Be a blessing to others by being in relationship with them and giving them the wisdom that God has given you. Do you have time? Then steward it well. Steward your time well, serve the church, push forward its agenda of making much of the name of Christ. Live for others, disciple others, be discipled by them. Give your life away, friends. Whatever it is that God has given you that is truly for your enjoyment and blessing and good, He intends for you to use it for others as well, whatever it might be. Do you have a home? Open your home. Invite people in. Host Bible studies. Just bring them over for dinner. Be a blessing for them. If you have a car, drive them to try people to church who can't drive any longer. The list could go on and on and on. Whatever God gives us, whatever God gives you, is not just for you. It is that through you, practical forms of His redemption is seen in 10,000 different ways. And salvation through His Son isn't simply for Mary's good, nor is it simply for the nation of Israel. But notice how she says, it is for all who would approach him. Look at verses 51 through 54, the, just the, 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 this list right one after the other. He has shown his strength. He has brought down. He's filled the hungry. He's helped the servants. God's redemption is for anyone who would call out that they have need of his redemption. And so certain is Mary. Now, there's two ways we can take this. She is reflecting on the faithfulness of God because he's a rememberer of his covenants. But as she shifts and thinks about God being the redeemer of all, there is a real sense that she can be reflecting on the work of God in the past, but simultaneously be thinking about the life of the child in her womb and what he's going to do in the future, in the present and the future. 
We do see this dynamic often in Scripture. So keep your finger in Luke. I want to take you to Romans chapter 8. So go to Romans chapter 8, where Paul does something very similar to this, where Paul in Romans 8 is talking about uh, God's salvific work being played out through the power of His Spirit, and Paul is talking about God's redemptive plan, including future people, including people like us from Paul's perspective, But so confident is Paul of God's certainty working, notice what tense all these verbs are in. Let me take it at Romans 8, starting at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, so foreknew, he's not talking about like foreknowledge, like God looks down the quarters of time, and what he's talking about foreknowledge here is a relationship that, that God has already an acquaintance with. That's an amazing thought to think of that. God already knew you, friend, before you were even born. God already knew you before your parents even decided to conceive of you. God's foreknowledge, he had this intimate relationship. Okay, that's what he's talking about here in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew that he had this relationship with, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here it is in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the thing. Paul's talking about what God is doing throughout time, future believers. But what tense are all these verses in? Past tense. It is such a certainty that Paul, like Mary, can speak of God's redemptive work in the past tense. And if you think that, that's just too abstract, we do this all the time. If you're at the office or you're at the warehouse and a supervisor gives you a job and you want to show, that, give them confidence that the job will be done, what do, you, what do you often say? It's a done deal. Got it taken care of. And you haven't even started. It's the same kind of assurance that God is saying that Mary is testifying the work, the redemptive work of his son, of God's son, that Paul is saying God's salvation will be secured in the lives of those he knows, that God's redemption is for all. It's a done deal. And here's the great news about it, friend. Especially if, if you come from a harder background, maybe you didn't have the privilege of growing up in a, in a Christian home, you don't need to have a Christian heritage to receive God's redemption. You don't need a Christian upbringing. You don't need even a track of good moral choices. You don't need connections, and you don't need pull. All you need is to know that you are needy. That's the only requirement we see in Scripture. All we need for God's redemption is to know that we have need of it, and it is ours. Even Mary. Maybe some of you come from a Catholic background. You need to hear this. Even Mary recognized she was a needy sinner who has now a Savior. Do you know it's verse 47? What did she say? My God, my Savior. And if Mary, the human mother of Jesus, knew she needed a Savior, I think it's safe to say that we all do. And the good news of the gospel is that God is the redeemer of all. The question is, do you see yourself as needing redeeming? And so Mary magnifies the Lord 
because he is a member of his covenants, he will act and always fulfill his promises. And she magnifies the Lord because he's the redeemer of all, not just the, the clean, not just the upright, not just the Jew, but all who see their need for redeeming. And finally, Mary magnifies the Lord because he is the reverser of fortunes. Do you see that in verse 50 and following this, this litany of verses of the mighty being brought down, the hungry made full with good things, the rich sent away empty-handed, the lowly brought high. In a sense, Mary is giving testimony. Mary is, is, is foreshadowing the work of her son that's in her womb, her son of, of his work of healing the sick, exercising demons, reaching out and restoring the discredited sinner, the friendless pariahs of society, preaching the gospel of the good news of Christ to the poor. The great reversal of fortunes. We spent a whole year in Mark's gospel reading and experiencing the reversal of fortunes that Christ can bring. The mighty will be brought down from their thrones because there's only one throne. And it fits only one king, and it's none of us. The hungry will be filled with good things, right? <laughs> I just love that promise. Now, keep in mind, not material things, not temporal things, but the good things. Not the things that are going to pass away, right? This is not a, a verse that says you can claim God's promises for prosperity and that kind of garbage theology. God says he will fill the hungry with good things. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And he says why they're blessed, because he says they're going to be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness in the home, in the workplace, in your community? Do you hunger and thirst for it? God says, if you do, you will be satisfied. He gives you no promise to fulfill your hunger for material prosperity and comforts. If that's the promise you're clinging to, you will be disappointed because He does not promise to give you that. But He does promise to satisfy you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The hope that Christ's birth brings that we celebrate at Christmas is the great reversal of fortunes. Remember, as we studied Mark's gospel, we saw that time and time again, and it often took the form of physical, tangible reversals, right? The sick being made well, the wealthy, the wealthy walking away discouraged, all those things. But it's not to say that in God's economy, it's about being pious and poor materially because that's inherently righteous and wealth of this world is inherently evil. That God does not want to replace one oppression with another other oppression. That's not the point. The point that of what Christ is doing in, in His earthly ministry was that as a reversal of fortunes in ways we could see pointing to the ultimate reversal of fortunes that often we can't see, that often we, we try to kind of ignore. The, the reversal of fortune being that you and I, we deserve God's just judgment right? We deserve the consequences of our sin. Those are our actions. Those are our, that's why the Bible uses such active verbs like transgression, wickedness. We are actively doing these things. We deserve the consequence of that. We deserve justice. That may seem odd to you because justice, we, we're always saying we want justice. When it comes to an almighty, perfectly holy being who's going to judge me, I do not want his justice. Neither do you. Because if he gives me justice, then I must be damned because I'm a guilty sinner. I want his mercy. 
<laughs> when I stand before that judge, I am not going to be demanding justice. I'm going to be asking for his mercy. And guess what? As the reversal of fortunes, I get his mercy because Christ satisfied the law fully for me. Christ reverses my fortunes. I deserve his just judgment. What I get is endearing, everlasting love from him. I deserve to be called unworthy, unable to uphold the demands of the law. What I get is the righteousness of Christ given to my account. The total righteousness of the law. I get that to my account. Friends, let me say something really shocking, and then let me balance it out, because that usually is helpful to get you if you're falling asleep. I'm saved by works. I am a Christian, and I'm saved by works. But they're not my works. They're the works of Jesus Christ. So, I get his endearing, everlasting love. I get the benefits of Christ's obedience, and I get mercy, and you do too, because Christ reverses the fortunes. That's the gospel message. For the weak, hungry, and poor, there is promise, strength, provision, and riches. But it is not the weakness, want, or wealth of this world that Christ is, command, is concerned about. That the, our physical strength, our hunger, our wealth, or lack thereof is not the point right? So, this, I want to be clear on that. It is not a matter of whether or not you have or the haves or the have-nots. Those are, that's not the point. The point is, do you know what true strength is? Do you know what your true strength is? Do you hunger after the right things? Do you know what true riches are? If you do, the good news of the gospel promises that your physical reality, whatever it might be, will not be an obstacle to the true reality from coming to pass. In short, friends, the themes that, that Mary magnifies the Lord, that He's a rememberer of covenants, that He's the redeemer of all, that He is the reverser of fortunes, are the themes that Christmas is supposed to remind us of, because Christ, through His birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, because Christ makes the final covenant a reality for us, Christ is the redeemer of all who know their need, and Christ is the one who will make all things right and judges all things wrong. Can you, let me leave you with this last question this morning, can you with Mary say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior? If you can't, then Mary's song is your song. If you can't, all it takes is believing that God's covenants can be for you, is trusting that Christ will be your redeemer if you say, I have need, I have nothing, but I know my need, and that's what I come to you with. And if you can do that in celebrating, when you do, he will reverse your fortunes as well. The greatest reversal, going from an enemy of God, as Romans 5 tells us, to being a son or daughter of the king. That's the gospel. That's what Mary magnifies the Lord for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
just these 10 verses from this young Jewish teen girl who reminds us of such deep, profound truths that you are a member of your promises, the promises you've made to us corporately as your people and to us individually as your sons and daughters, you will never forget and you will fulfill that you redeem all who are needy. And Father, we are a needy people and you reverse fortunes. Father, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We with Mary magnify you, O Lord, and our spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. And we thank you for all this in the name of the child that Mary bore in her womb. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.